0: Dear God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for that incredible passage of scripture and this amazing idea that you have adopted us as your children. I pray, Lord, that this morning that reality would sink in deeply to our hearts, that we wouldn't just engage it with our minds, um, but that we would experience your great love and that we would experience what it is to be sisters and brothers in Christ today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Raise your hand if you had a chance to see the movie Instant Family. Okay, a couple of us. Um, In case you haven't, here's the premise. Um, There's a a couple that desperately wants to have a family. And so they decide that um, the best option they have is to adopt. And they decide their best option for adoption is to go through the foster care system. Um, And so... They embark on a journey uh, that many families here at Grace, including my own, uh, has embarked upon, and they experience some of the challenges, uh, and there's a lot of uplifting, comedic uh, times so that you don't cry uh, when you watch this movie. Um, At the end of the movie, there's this powerful scene, and I'd like us to actually watch this together. Um, this This depicts the ultimate goal of foster care. Um, that a child would be able to call someone mom or dad forever. Foster care is not intended to be a long-term solution. It's intended to be a transition. And that a child either, by God's grace, is able to return to their home family, where they were born into, restored and whole, or that the the child receives a new family that will hold them forever. So let's watch uh, together this scene now. You know, family court is important. Sorry, wait. wait, Oh, wait. Grandma Sandy's in the house. <laughs> 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 Tell me make it. Stop it. This is the idea that's made for me. Turn over. Go ahead, Judge. Thank you, Grandma Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, family court is important work. But it's difficult work. We spend day in and day out dealing with things that we feel no family should have to go through. So on these rare days, when we get to smile at work, these days mean a great deal to all of us. And I may not look, but I'm a huge cornball, and I live like this. Do you know what <laughs> So it's, a, it's a, a silly movie in a lot of ways, but that final scene is incredibly powerful. Um, it, it's, it's a, in a sense, we witness something that you can't actually see, right? We witness a change in status. Uh, these children forever have a home um, because of that day. Um, I, in preparing for this message, I talked to a number of people who had gone through the adoption process, and what I kept hearing them say was this. We chose these children, and we brought them into our home, and God made them ours forever. Um, my mentor, he said that, that the judge, uh, before he signed the paper, said, I need you to affirm one thing for me. He said, you will never disown this child my mentor was able to say yes, and they signed that paper. And in Texas, I don't know if you know this, but in Texas, when a child is adopted, they receive a new birth certificate signaling this change in status. Now, that's what our passage is about today, right? It's about being adopted into God's family. And as, as much as that scene um, can make me sort of tear up, especially if you watch the whole movie and see the progress that these kids make and the, the parents make to become one family, as much as that makes me tear up, How much more powerful is this idea that we are made God's children through adoption? Um, That's our passage today. That's our message today. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would, would take this main idea and sear it into our hearts. That God sent his son to suffer and die so that he might be able to adopt you. By putting your trust in Jesus Christ, you become a child of God, and God's Spirit speaks within you and allows you to call God, Daddy. That is a profound idea, and I hope that today we can unpack that together. Um, If you have your blue Bibles in front of you, let's uh, turn to page 974. We're in Galatians chapter 4, and our passage today has sort of three movements, so I'm just going to take them in turn, and we'll share a few thoughts uh, with each so starting in verse 1 verse 1 to 3 really describes the state we were in before we came to know Christ Paul puts it this way I mean that the heir as long as he is a child is no different from slave though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul says that you and I, we were like underage heirs. Um, Perhaps uh, it's, it's like a child who has a trust fund. All these resources that are there, that are rightfully theirs, Um, But the child is not old enough to responsibly use those resources. And so the child waits until the day of coming of age, right? And in that sense, this child has no more power uh, than the the people who administer that trust, the trustees, right? Until the child has the responsibility uh, necessary that the parents deem to be the appropriate age, the appropriate um, ability to make good decisions. Um, this is really similar to something we talked about two weeks ago when Jonathan uh, was sharing with us. He, um, at the, in chapter 3, Paul says that the law was like a tutor for the Jews. Uh, it showed them for a time um, the basics of following God and walking with him. And um, The tutor was good, but the tutor was insufficient, that there was something better to come as the child would grow. That's the same idea here. But what's interesting is in our passage today, Again, uh, Paul uses the metaphor of guardians and managers, right? These people that are um, are teaching a child the right way. Um, But this time, he doesn't say it's the law. He says it's the elementary principles of the world. Um, In Greek, the term that's in our New Testament is stoikia. Um, It means, essentially, in in Greek literature, it's used to describe the ABCs, the basic building blocks um, that make up language, that make up life. And I think it's uh, helpful that we remember that Paul is talking uh, largely to two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, in this letter. But what's interesting is he says we were all enslaved to these elementary principles. So for the Jews, the elementary principles were the law, right? That became clear earlier in the passage. Um, The the law shows uh, us exactly how far we fall short of God's standard. Um, but before we start to uh, blame the law for that, Paul says, it's not the law that has the problem. The problem is in our hearts. Right? He says, the law serves like a mirror. It shows us the ways in which we fall short. It's not that the law is unreasonable. It's not that God's standards are too high. It's that we all have this inner desire to do wrong. Right? Um, Paul in Romans develops this idea really well, especially the first five chapters. He says that when, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, when they chose to do things their own way, um, entered the, the, into the world entered sin and this desire to do what is wrong. And if you, if you um, believe that people are basically good and that um, they're corrupted by society, I invite you to come um, and, and observe my two-year-old uh, interacting with my one-year-old. Um, he, overall, by the world's standards, he's a great kid, but he's selfish, and he, and he pushes, and he hits, and he doesn't understand when I try to explain to him why he shouldn't do that, because there's, there's something inside of him, and something inside of me, and something inside of all of us that longs to do wrong, and so the elemental force that the Jews were under was this acknowledgement that they needed something more that they needed to change, but they couldn't do it on their own. Um, Most of the Galatians that he's speaking to, however, are Gentiles, which means they had different elemental forces. They weren't aware of the law, right? Um, For the Gentiles, what they were interacting with was spiritual power. In fact, dark spiritual power, right? Um, They, like others, worshipped idols. And when they did that, certain things happened that they couldn't explain. And so they assumed that those things were done by gods, They didn't have experience with the one true God. They didn't experience his love and his life. And so they bowed down to statues in inanimate objects. That was the slavery that they had. So I I, I wonder this morning, as we reflect on this, what were those elemental forces? What were those uh, principles that you and I uh, were once under before we knew Christ? Um, Perhaps... Uh, Like the Gentiles, we served certain idols. Obviously, in our culture and in our day, we don't uh, bow down to statues, right? Um, The idolatry of our culture is much more subtle. Um, One thing that we tend to idolize our values, right? And one value that I see in our culture constantly idolized is that of personal liberty and freedom. Um, Liberty is not a bad thing, but when we try to make it our God, it takes over and enslaves us. Um, People actually believe that what they perceive to be true must be true. Um, People actually believe that whatever feels right for them is the right thing to do. And this is a kind of slavery that leads to brokenness, right? Perhaps you, like me, were enslaved to that before you knew Christ. Um, Another uh, idol in our culture that I particularly struggled with and was part of my calling that the Lord broke in me um, was an, uh, the idolatry of wealth. Um, this idea that if we accumulate enough things, we'll find security. Right? When in reality, the only security we have is in Christ. Um, but perhaps your uh, elementary, elementary forces were less like the Gentiles and more like the Jews. Perhaps there was a set of things that you believed. Maybe you grew up in the church, you grew up in a religious home. And you believe that if you did these seven, eight things, these things that we've been talking about week in and week out the last several weeks, that you would earn God's favor and hope. Um, Perhaps there was some sort of uh, law that you were operating under, and you didn't know that we do these things like reading the Bible, praying, sharing the gospel, caring for people. Perhaps you didn't know we do those things to engage with God, um, not to be accepted by God, right? Just a, a... I guess about a year ago, we modified our identity statement here as a church, and we added the statement, enjoying the presence of God, right? Um, before, we, when we were child children, when we were underage heirs, we didn't enjoy the presence of God. We tried to gain the favor of God. But when Christ came and transformed us, we actually could engage and enjoy God's presence. And that's what he starts describing in verse 4. Join me back there. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as sons. Uh, Most religions concern themselves with the question, how do I get to God? Again, that's what we've been discussing. But the Bible tells the story of how God has come to us right? It's, we're not the protagonist of this story. God's the main character. God has come to us as one of us, as a human. If you've been in church for any length of time, that is possibly a truth that you take for granted, right? This idea that God has come in the form of a human is a radical idea. It's a crazy idea, right? I just had a chance to, to take the ordination exam and in that they they make you really think about what's the implication of this. Not just that God came as human, but why does that matter? Um, I had an experience uh, that uh, illustrated for me the importance of it just recently when I was in Colorado. Um, Just two weeks ago, I was preparing for the trip and preparing this sermon, meeting with the preaching cohort, which is a group of us uh, who preach here at Grace and share uh, about what we hear the Lord saying in and through Um, the messages. And Britt said to me, Britt had just gotten back from Colorado, and I was going to Colorado. He said, bro, when you get up to those mountains, you're going to get some like sweet spiritual insight that you can share in the sermon. And so I took that as a promise, um, both from Brit and from God. (laughs) I imagined myself on some mountain, um, seeing a moose, right? And and like some deep spiritual insight that comes from that. Um, But What I received was much more pedestrian. I had car trouble. Um, My alternator went out, uh, and I had only a few days to get it fixed before I needed to return so that I could be here today with you. Um, It was a a nerve wracking situation, and my father-in-law took the car to the mechanic, and uh, they gave me a quote that made my jaw drop. Um, And so I thought to myself, well, let me, before I spend all this money, let me see if I can't fix the problem. Uh, myself with the resources that I have Uh, my brother-in-law was on the trip with us and he happens to be an electrical engineer um, who has worked most of his life in the automotive industry Um, he designs basically alternators right so I felt pretty confident that with his help um, and with the right parts we could fix this problem um, and not spend a fortune Um, so I called him up I said hey what do you think he said yeah sure I'm not sure we have all the tools but let's at least take a look at it Um, to make sure that it's the right fix um, for your problem. And uh, after I hung up the phone with him, I was feeling good, and then all of a sudden, I did something that's actually pretty ridiculous. I got on YouTube, and I said, how do you change an alternator, YouTube? Um, I found a video for a 2006 uh, Nissan Quest. I drive a 2013, and I thought, well, maybe it'd be close enough. And I watched the 12-minute video. Like many of you, when I finished the video, I was more confused than when I started. Here's the the deal. I had an expert who knows all about cars, who is willing to walk me through step by step and show me how to fix my problem. And yet I turned to YouTube in a time of need because I wanted to understand it for myself. Perhaps you can relate to this. Jesus comes to us as a human to show us what it means to be human. Jesus comes as a child of God to show us how to be children of God. He didn't come to tell us about it. He came to demonstrate it. So the how-to for being a child of God, it's not found on YouTube. It's not found in a self-help book. It's found in Jesus, in his life in his ministry, and the way that he conducted himself. Um, we read about it in Scripture. That gives us a, a, an idea of how to live. But even more powerfully than that, the Spirit of God lives inside of us and enables us to follow Jesus' example. Right? We can't do it without God's Spirit. If we just look at Jesus, put him on a pedestal, and try to do what he did, we've got another law. We've got another thing we're striving for. But instead, Christ has come and shown us, mentored us, apprenticed us. And he still does it today through the means of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was born of a woman. And in Jewish culture, to be born of a woman means that you're a Jew. You're under the law, right? Which is what Paul says in this passage. What's amazing is that uh, Jesus is under the law and he follows the law. And then at the end of everything... (laughs) He accepts the punishment for not following the law. Right? That's the mystery, the amazing part of the gospel. Um, it's not a new idea. It wasn't a new idea when the, gospel, when the people who wrote the gospel wrote it down. Right? Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, writes this in chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, By his wounds, we are healed. Um, This Isaiah passage deals squarely with the question of atonement, right? We fell short. Paul in this uh, passage talks about how Jesus redeems people who were under the law, people who couldn't keep the law. But what's amazing is, is our passage takes it just one step further, a slight step further than Isaiah even, and shows us that it's not just about acquittal, It's about adoption, right? It's not just about being forgiven of our sins. It's about being brought into a new family. Both are necessary and both bring us new life and new hope. And so it's through Jesus, it's through him coming, showing us what it is to be a son and through him being obedient all the way to the point of death on a cross that you and I, our passage says, are able to be made children of God. Adopted into God's family. Um, verse 6 helps us understand then the, the what now, okay? We've been adopted through Christ, so, so what? It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I think that those two verses have important implications for the way that we relate to each other and for the way that we relate to God. So I'll start first by talking about how it changes our relationship. Um, you see, Paul, just before, just before this, made a really radical statement. He said, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. right?" But he didn't really entirely explain how that is. Where did these distinctions go? Why are they no longer uh, those things? Uh, Well, you see, the Jews, they're the original heirs, right? They're those young, underage heirs who have received the promise. They're children of Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham that I will bless the world. I will bless the nations of the world through your children. so they were heirs, the rightful heirs of the promise. The Gentiles... On the other hand, they didn't even know who God was, much less what his promises were. We talked at length during this time about how some Jewish Christians in the early church had a sort of superiority complex where they were asserting themselves over the others because they were the rightful heirs of the promise. And the idea of a natural-born child being favored over uh, an adopted or a foster child is nothing new. And it's a sad reality that happens from time to time, especially those of us who have um, been around the system and seen um, what happens to some kids. Uh, I just heard a really sad story uh, the other day. There was a 12-year-old girl who had been in foster care. She had been in several homes. And one day, her new placement family took her to a family barbecue. And when she got home, she profusely thanked that mother Thank you so much for taking me. Oh, my gosh, I had such a good time. I met all these people. It was so great. And the mother was like, why wouldn't I take you? I mean, she didn't understand the gratitude of this child. The child said to her, in the past, whenever there was a family get-together, the family would get a babysitter, and I would spend my time with them. I wouldn't come to the family gathering. Um, It's a really sad story, but it happens all the time. And all of us in this room can say, no, that's not right. That shouldn't be that way. Um, Thanks be to God that we, who are not perfect people, can recognize the injustice of that. And God, who is perfect, never acts that way. God doesn't have favorites. There are no second-class children in God's family. Um, What I find amazing about our passage this morning is the first five times I read it, I thought that Paul was mixing his metaphors. Right? He starts off talking about an underage heir and then he switches to adoption. Right? An underage heir comes of age, isn't adopted. Right? It's, it, those are two separate things, I thought. But as I, I read the passage more carefully, what I realized is whether an underage heir who is the, the, the one who should receive the promise from Israel um, or a stranger of God who is a Gentile, both are adopted. So that nobody has any room to claim superiority over the other. It's one covenant, one family. And that's why there's not Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. The things that we once used to do to get a one-up, to assert our dominance, to say, you know, we're the better Christians over each other, they're useless. The reality is we are all adopted sons and daughters of Christ. And we should treat each other with the same respect that we would treat Jesus, God's begotten son. Um, So in addition to to transforming the way we see each other, this passage aims to transform the way we see God and our relationship with him. Um, All this talk about heir makes us think about what are we going to get, right? When we talk about inheritance, we think about money, property, goods, But at the end of the day, um, while that's not insignificant, that's not the primary inheritance that we're promised in this passage. Um, What we're promised in this passage is that we can call God Father. Um, You know, this is the same thing that happens with human adoption or natural adoption that we see. We we think to ourselves, oh, this child was going to have a life of poverty before this nice family came along, right? Right? And we think, oh, this child is so fortunate because they're going to get to go to college now, like they maybe weren't going to be able to with their family of birth. But the child doesn't care about that. The child's not concerned about uh, economic opportunities or education opportunities. The child wants someone to call mommy and daddy. The child wants a home. The child wants security. And that's our primary inheritance, as children that have been adopted by God, is we can call him Abba, Father. Um, Abba is a term of endearment. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard this. This is probably nothing new. But you didn't call, uh, you didn't call just anybody Abba, right? Um, I think that maybe the best parallel in our culture today is daddy, right? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intimate familial term, something you use within the household. And I don't know um, about you all, but when when my child calls me daddy, my heart lights up because I know that my child wants to relate to me. I can meet a need of my child. I can connect with my child. And if that's true of me, how much more of our perfect father in heaven, that he rejoices and delights when we call him daddy. Um, Jesus uh, used this designation for God in the most difficult moment of his life. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's preparing uh, to to face the cross. And in Mark's Gospel, uh, he says specifically this Abba, take this cup from me. Jesus, in his most difficult moment, calls out for his daddy because he knows that he can trust his father. His father is good. Um, and it's that trust that Jesus has, that his Father is good, that enables him to say the next thing. <laughs> but not my will, but yours be done. Right? It's Jesus' intimacy with the Father that allows him to trust and obey and do the very hard thing. Sometimes we, um, we've, we've been told as Christians that because we're God's heirs, everything in our life is going to go well. <laughs> right? Because we're God's heirs, We should be prosperous all the time. But that's not how Christ's life was. That's not how the disciples' lives were. They faced significant hardship. But the beauty is they never faced it alone. And they trusted Abba to take care of them and to get them through even the most difficult moments in life. And so this morning, I I think it's important for us to remember and reflect upon that reality that we are children of the Most High God. Again, this is something that can lose its power over time, but I believe that the Holy Spirit this morning can remind us of it and draw us closer to God. Um, Did you catch what was said at the end of that clip? The judge said, I now, uh, by the power vested in me, I now pronounce you a family right? Um, God, uh, uh, sorry, the judge took these five individuals, uh, many of, uh, several of them coming from different backgrounds, from different families, and he made them one family with a strike of the gavel. Um, So too, we have become one family in Christ. Because of what he did for us, we are one. Even with our divisions and our petty differences, we are one in Christ. And so um, today, as we reflect on that, we have an opportunity to come to the family table. There's a meal prepared for us by the sacrifice and death of Christ given by our good, good Father for us to enjoy together as one family. Come to the family table. Enjoy a meal with your sisters and brothers. A holy meal which was provided by our loving Father. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this reminder that we are yours. Uh, Just as we sang this morning, Lord, we want to build our life on your love because that's a firm foundation. Um, Everything else in this world is shaky. Lord, there are um, elemental things that we once were enslaved to, Jesus, that sometimes we uh, go back to. But this morning, I pray that you would remind us who we are, whose we are, and help us to draw nearer to you in all things. We thank you for choosing us, for bringing us um, out of difficult situations, and we thank you that um, you won't reject us, Lord, because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. We thank you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.